Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, here we are with another episode today, and I have great news for everyone who has been begging me uh, to get Dr. Bookman back. He has returned from his exile in Israel, and he is uh, ready to give us more on the life of Christ. We are excited to have him back. Really thankful for the first three parts. And as a reminder, you can access those either online or through any of the podcast apps that you're using. And one notable episode that you're going to want to reference would be the first one we did on February 16th, the, the part one, because there, if you access that online, podcast.petergaming.com, you can access the the document of the 10 important insights basic to a proper understanding of the life of Christ. And there you can have both the abbreviated as well as the full versions and be able to reference those, follow along, print it out, memorize it, do whatever you will with it. So anyway, it's great to have you back, Dr. Bookman. What do you have for us today? Well, thank you. We have been in Israel for a couple of trips, but it is great to be back and uh, to return to this issue. And again, these are just some uh, thoughts that uh, occurred to me over the course of time that I think are very basic to understanding the life Jesus lived and specifically his ministry. And, And they're sometimes a bit overlooked or underappreciated. And, and we started uh, by emphasizing the reality of his humanity, that he wasn't uh, God pretending to be man. He was took upon himself genuine, unfallen humanity. And uh, we tried to distinguish between the early part of his public ministry when he was deliberately making the case for himself as Messiah and as God come in the flesh and... Uh, Therefore, he was going where the Jews are, and he was doing miracles. But the time came when there, the the rejection of that generation was so manifest that Jesus turned to a a, a distinct focus. Let's put it that way. That uh, and that was private preparations. He sought opportunity creatively and resourcefully and perseveringly. He sought opportunity to get alone with his disciples to tell them he was going to die. And of course, that news was so. Uh, it was, it, it just, it absolutely, uh, it scandalized his disciples. He, they, they were offended and horrified and, um, and they really never got it until after the resurrection, but we'll come back to that. But, but then we, uh, we talked a little bit about his miracles and that the miracles were in fact the means by which, uh, he proved true or one might say, given his genuine incarnation, his genuine uh, humanity, that it was the Spirit of God working through him and empowering him to demonstrate the truth of his claims and the truth of his message. But uh, uh, we come to on the sheet number six, and the point here is simply this, and, and it's, it's really a, um, it's a, it's a profoundly uh, biblical reality, but uh, I, I, it, my impression is that, that it's as you ponder the life of Jesus as a whole, that you really become impacted by, by this strategy of Jesus. And what I mean by it is there, what the note says is this, that, you know, Jesus never had a problem generating crowds. Now, obviously he's healing everyone who gets to him. 
the, the, I think what the Bible teaches is that if you got to Jesus, whether it was on your own behalf, uh, because of the issue of blood with which you are suffering for all those years, whether you were bringing your, your, your family member, your father or whatever who was deaf, whatever it was, if you got to Jesus, he healed you. He never, he never healed crowds. He never healed, you know, he didn't say everybody, you know, on the count of three, you'll be healed, go home. You had to get to him. And, and imagine number one, the crowds that would generate. And number two, imagine the issue of crowd control, you know, so there was, this was, a, but Jesus never had trouble getting crowds and those crowds were wildly excited. And, and, and many of them, I like to say many of the people who walked away after being with him, had broken a crutch over their legs before they did so. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 or, or were dancing and leaping because they could see and they couldn't see before. So you imagine the crowds and the excitement and so on. And so Jesus never had a, a problem generating a crowd. As a matter of fact, later on, he's going to have a significant problem escaping those crowds, but those crowds and, and actually now that I'm into it, uh, I, I deal with this in number eight. So I'm going to jump around just a little bit here. We'll allow it. All right. Thank you. <laughs> but, but uh, it's important to understand that those crowds, the cu- huge crowds Jesus had, had at least that threefold dynamic or that threefold ramification in Jesus' ministry. Number one, and this is huge, it deceived his followers, his disciples. Mm-hmm. And, and especially after Jesus began to openly speak again and again of dying. And, and, and yet everywhere he goes, even when he quits Jewish territory and heads for Gentile territory, he has these massive crowds. Hmm. If he has to feed 5,000 because it's late and there's nothing for him to eat in Judea or in Decapolis, not at Decapolis, on the plain of Bethsaida, uh, Galilee is what I want to say. Just a few weeks later, he has to feed 4,000 in Decapolis, which is thoroughly Jew, uh, Gentile. So my point is, and I said that poorly, but, but, but everywhere he goes, even when he quits Jewish territory, he has these huge crowds. Well, to his disciples, there's, I think they're, they're consistently thinking, this is wonderful. This is great. I don't know what this dying talk is, but my goodness, everywhere he goes, the people love him. What more could you expect? Mm-hmm. So, so again, they, they really, uh, they, they couldn't see past. And Jesus tried to help them. See, I think this is what's going on with the parable of the sower. Uh, you know, I, I think the, the message Jesus is teaching in the parable of the sower on that afternoon to those disciples, Matthew 13, is you see these huge crowds and you think we're on a roll here. We're, we're on a way. The kingdom is just around the corner. But I'm telling you, a lot of this seed is falling on shallow soil or thorny soil. There, there are the Pharisees who are angry. You know, that's the, the, the uh, seed that fell on the hard roadway and the birds plucked it away, clearly. Mm-hmm. But what about the shallow soil that sprang up quickly? Looks good. What about the, 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 uh, you know, the thorn infested soil? Mm-hmm. So I lose my way. The point is that, uh, Jesus always was able to generate crowds and, and if he couldn't escape them. And number one, it really made it hard. I say deceive. That may be a little strong, but it made it very hard for those following him and sitting at his feet to believe the message that he was going to be rejected. Where is rejection in this? 
But number two, and this is huge, and Jesus, I'm going to say, and my ninth point was wise as a serpent, and he uses this very, very carefully. Now, I say wise as a serpent. That may sound a little crass just as a standalone comment, but it's from Matthew 10, 16, where he, prompt, where he commanded his disciple to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So, mm-hmm. so be clever, but don't compromise any ethical or moral reality. And Jesus was absolutely a master at that. And in the second point, so I'm saying that Jesus always generated crowds. And it made it hard for his disciples to believe that he was going to die. But secondly, it totally tied the hands of his enemies. Hmm. Now, one of the questions that is a very, very legitimate question, I'm, I'm really surprised at how seldom I hear it even brought up. But it's, it's a question to me that just demands to be asked if we're going to consider this as real historical narrative that really happened. And the question is, how did Jesus get away with it? And uh, that is at a time when the nation of Rome, the empire of Rome, was so skittish, so paranoid, and and for good reason. You know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean somebody's not chasing you, you know what I'm saying? And, and they were paranoid because, in point of fact, they had every reason to be suspicious or to be uh, uh, concerned about sedition, rebellion in this or that part of their empire, and they would not put up with it. And here Jesus in the part of their empire where they have more seditious activity than anywhere else. Mm. And in the part of their empire where when they do have seditious activity, it's harder to put down than anywhere else. I always tell people that, that you go to Israel and it's like one big paintball arcade. You know, it's like one big outdoor paintball arcade. It's just, it's perfectly framed for guerrilla warfare. And the Romans didn't understand they, that. They knew nothing but brute, overpowering force, you know. And, uh, and, and they, it, it, something would happen. Some, somebody would rise up at the provincialization of Judea or whatever. And, 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 and the, the Romans would think, I can send, we can just send a few forces down from, Damascus and those forces get wiped out or they'd lay in wait for them and trap them and ca- capture all their, the, the rebels would, all their munitions and so on. And then it would drag on and on forever. So here you are at a time when Rome is so nervous, so paranoid about uprisings, local uprisings, and in the place where it's happened more often and with more difficulty out of the place. And for the better part of three years, Jesus walks up and down the countryside claiming to be Messiah king. Now, let me just say, for the listening audience, (laughs) I realize Messiah means a lot of things. Jesus claimed to be the Christ. He explicitly, we talked about this before, his explicit claim was, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And John validates that when he puts that as the purpose statement in his gospel. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that believing you might have light through his name, John 20, 31. But my point is that the the uh, uh, he, he it, Christ means a lot of things. I, I, to me, Pete, what do you think of this? It seems to me that the title Mashiach is not all that important in the Old Testament. Either seven or nine times, there are a couple of passages that are a little debated mm-hmm. as to whether they're explicit reference to the coming deliverer. But but let's say nine times you have that title, which that's not insignificant. But you have dozens of other titles which are sure. m- much more. Right. You know, but but during the intertestamental period, that word Christos Greek Mashiach Hebrew just becomes the one term that wraps together everything the Old Testament says about the coming deliverer, and and that's why Jesus takes it as a title, Jesus the Christ. 
Now, my point is that Christ or Messiah means a lot of things, but both biblically and to the common mind, Jewish mind of the first century, above everything else, it means king. If he's Messiah, he's Mm -hmm. king. So I go back to my question that I wandered from. How does Jesus get away with wandering about making the claim to be Messiah King? Now, let me stop on that. He is circumspect about that. And he is careful not to use the actual term Christ of himself. Because he knows that it means so deliberately means King that he's only going to enable his enemies. They're going to be able to go to the Romans and so, but, but that doesn't mean he cl- doesn't claim to be Christ. What he does is somewhat ransack the Old Testament for word pictures and terms and titles and so on, passages, whether it's, think about it, whether it's in the synagogue in Nazareth when he reads Isaiah 61 and says, this day is this scripture fulfilled your ears. Everybody knows he's claiming mm-hmm. to be Messiah. That's exactly right. the response. Uh, whether it's the phrase son of man that he uses 81 times, and I always think of that phrase, you know, think how clever that is, because on the one hand, son of man comes right out of Daniel 7. One mm-hmm. like unto a son of man is dispatched to establish a fifth world kingdom by, he's dispatched by the uh, ancient of days. Well, to a Jewish ear, son of man means this Messiah. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, to Jesus' enemies, I mean, if somebody goes back, I always think if somebody goes to Pilate, and says, you better watch out, this guy claims to be the son of man. <laughs> you know, Pilate's going to say, yeah, me too. You know, I mean, <laughs> and it really, it's very, it's just that clever. So Jesus, again and again, one, one of the places where you see this, and what I'm saying is that Jesus didn't use the word Christos. One time, he takes it in the record before he begins to actually prepare mm-hmm. for the cross with his disciples that, up in the regions of Caesarea Philippi. So about one time, and that's John chapter 4. When the woman at the well says, I know the Jews are looking for the Christ. And he says, the one speaking to you is he. But now that's mm-hmm. at Sychar in Samaria at a well, you know, and I think he probably looked over his shoulder before he said, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, uh, the point being that Jesus was so clever and circumspect not to arm his enemies, but he openly claimed to be Messiah, God come, uh, Messiah, God come to flesh, but the incendia, the politically incendiary element of that clearly is Messiah. He claimed Mm -hmm. to be the Messiah. Now, where was I in that point? The thing is, I'm asking the question, how did Jesus get away? And I, and I think part of it is that he was thus circumspect, but the big answer to that question and the biblical answer, the gospel answer, because it it, it says again and again. So I, I articulate the question very explicitly. How did Jesus get away? with making the claim to be Messiah King at that time and at that place in the Roman Empire? And the answer is, they wanted to take him, but they could not because they feared the people. So I'm back to this thought. You have these crowds, and they're very, very strategic to Jesus' ministry. On the one hand, they confuse his disciples, and Jesus is going to have to work hard to get him past that, really hard. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, one could say it's going to take his death and resurrection to really get him past it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it totally, totally tied the hands of his enemies again and again. And there's a dynamic here that maybe it'd be worthwhile just to take two minutes to talk about. So I'm, I'm, I'm still 
Believe it or not, I'm, I, I, I switched down to point number eight for those of you who are following along, <laughs> fans. But, uh, but no, but really, uh, I'm, I'm making the point that, that Jesus, uh, it, it was, it was, it, he remained this wildly popular folk hero and he generated these crowds everywhere he went. And I was going to say there's, there's a, there's kind of a, a multi-level, but inescapable, undeniable, uh, um, situation at stake here because it's, it's very simply, it's this, that Rome had this, this vast empire and she had divided it up into ruling districts, provinces, what do you want to call them? And, uh, there were various types of authorities and officers and some were client kingdoms and some were provinces and so on. But wherever you had a Roman ruling district that was, that was assigned to a given, uh, officer, that officer had two basic responsibilities, collect the taxes, keep the peace, keep the money rolling into Rome and, 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 and keep the peace. I like to tell people that, uh, it was kind of a distinctive, uh, historical situation because the Roman government, the empire had spent itself into to total, total poverty on the basis of the most ridiculous self-serving and ill-conceived, uh, you know, spending, um, uh, efforts and, uh, that's number one. And number two, the only thing they could think to do about it was to tax their citizens more heavily. You know, I said, it's, it's a long time ago. It's hard for us to get in touch with that sort of thing. But, <laughs> but, but the point is that you, that was the Roman officer. Number one, collect the taxes. Number two, keep the peace. And Rome had a vast army, but it was spread way beyond its limits. And they had this remarkable road system that they had engineered and caused each district to build and they inspected it carefully to move their armies. But with that, they didn't want to have to be calling troops into your district to settle things. If you couldn't take care of it, we'll find somebody else. So, so every Roman officer be he, who he is. Sometimes people were living on thinner ice than others, but at any rate, this was their responsibility. I got to keep the peace. So now here comes this, 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 this Nazarene wandering about village, village, synagogue, the synagogue with he's healing people. And people are coming from other countries and everybody goes. And this is one single hot potato for everybody. So on the one hand, he's so wildly popular that, that, you know, the authorities have to be on the alert. They have to be concerned. But on the other hand, if his enemies did to Jesus, what, for instance, they did to Stephen, they just mm-hmm. spirited him off behind a house somewhere and stoned him to death. And that gets us into a whole nother question, but I'll leave it alone for a moment. The fact is that what they knew is if we just take this wildly popular folk hero who's doing nothing but going around healing people, he's making some pretty startling and troubling claims, but he's, he's, he's healing people. We just haul him off and stone him. There's going to be a riot. Mm-hmm. And if there's a riot, the Romans are going to have to come and put it down. And when they get done doing that, they're going to figure out who made this trouble. Mm-hmm. And it's that dynamic that protects Jesus. It's, it, there's real genius in it, you know, both uh, historical providential genius and individual, you know, clever genius on the part of Jesus. Uh, so I come back to it. And, and the Bible says again and again. So the question before the house is, uh, how did he get away with making those claims? And I think on the one hand, he did it very circumspectly. He was careful about it. But on the other hand, he he, he was protected by the crowds. That's why the Bible says several times they wanted to take him, but they could not because they feared the people or, 
not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. That was, that was the fear. Now I'm going to finish a thought here. I'm saying that everywhere he went, he had huge crowds and that confused the disciples. Secondly, it tied the hands of his enemies, a huge dynamic. And one other point that I have on the sheet and I, I'll stand by it. it it's sort of a, a narrower point, but it was imperative. I, I can say this biblically from the authority of Jesus himself. That Jesus die, not as we might have expected him to die. That is, as history might have suggested he would die by stoning at the hands of the Jews, but at the hands of the Romans. And this is the dynamic. Now, John makes this point rather explicitly. I'll, I'll just say it this quickly. Three times. John, and it, John is the only one who records this. It's Jesus' words, but, but John does pick out these words to record. And there's a, there's a purpose in that because in John three, of course, he has Jesus saying as Moses lifted up the serpent, the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. And then in John eight at the feast of dedication, uh, the feast of tabernacles, he has Jesus because, because the Pharisees were saying, you're just speaking for yourself. You're not speaking. And Jesus says, when I am lifted up, then you'll know. So lift it up. Then you'll know that I speak for the father. And then in John 12, you have that marvelous statement, I, if I am lifted up, will draw them into myself. But that's verse 31. What's curious is in verse 32, John says this, this spake Jesus concerning the type of death, tupas, the type of death he would die. And then in John 18, Verse 28, when Jesus is brought from Caiaphas, he'd been tried, you know, in the middle of the night that, uh, and I say tried, there's been this hearing and they found indictment. And it says they, they brought from, he was brought from Caiaphas to Pilate. And Pilate says, what's the charge? And they said, if he weren't a malefactor, we wouldn't have brought him to, we just kill him. And Pilate says, I'm not going to, you, you go try him yourself. And then they say, well, you know that we can't put him to death. And then John says this, John the apostle in the, in the, in his writing, he says, this was in fulfillment of what Jesus said concerning the type of death. Hmm. So, number one, Jesus said it was imperative that he die, not by stoning, but by lifted up as a reference to crucifixion, the type of death. So I'm just saying that by reason, it was, number one, it was imperative by Jesus' own words that he die by being lifted up, crucified. And uh, John makes that explicit there in John 12 and John 18. But what's my point here is that the mechanism, the strategy by which this happened is his popularity. These wild eyed, these crowds that, that everywhere. And it was superficial. It was self-serving. That's my point. I'm going to get into it two minutes here, <laughs> but into, but, but the point is that because of those crowds, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, let's be very careful here, but the Jewish leadership, which did in fact, set itself on being rid of Jesus, but they couldn't do it themselves. There were several times where they picked up stones and thought about stoning him, but that never happened. What happened was they delivered him to Pilate. And the reason was they feared, and it's explicit. You know, we can't put him to death. And this was done, you know, in, in, in fulfillment of what Jesus said. So let me go back where I started. Here's where I'm taking you. Number one, uh, Jesus never had any trouble generating crowds. 
And, and it was important, but, but those crowds confused his disciples, tied the hands of his enemies, and eventuated in his death at the hands of the Romans. So it's all explicit in the scriptures. On the other hand, where I started out is this, that Jesus had a remarkably important and effective strategy that he used again and again. And a strategy by which he would test what seemed to be the willingness of the crowds to submit to him, to give him their allegiance, to follow him. And again and again, whether it's in in, in just one-on-one contact or whether it's with crowds and so on, what Jesus does when it seems that these huge numbers or this individual is really anxious to follow him, willing to submit to him, willing to, to acknowledge his kingship in their lives and give him their allegiance, when that happens, Jesus tests it with hard words. Hmm. And as I say in the sheet, I don't mean hard to understand. He doesn't tell him a riddle and ask him to figure it out. Words that are difficult to obey because it's going to cost you something. Hmm. And and this happens again and again. I think it happens just real quickly up there in uh, Nazareth. Now, you may, I don't know how uh, off the top of their heads familiar the, the, the listeners will be. You can go read it in Luke 4, verse 16 through the end of the chapter, but Jesus comes early in his Galilee ministry to Nazareth. That's the city he was reared in. And he goes to the synagogue. That I, I think Luke is saying that it was his habit to go, his family synagogue. And um, because he's begun to make a name for himself, this is he's at least uh, 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 changed the water to wine and cleansed the temple the first time. And there were some miracles at the Passover that John refers to. So this local boy made good, you know, comes back to Nazareth. Now he's moved his family to Capernaum by now. But still, this, we, we've known Jesus all of our life. Now he comes back. So he's invited to participate in the synagogue service. And uh, and and he does, in fact, uh, the hand of the Isaiah scroll. And he uh, reads one of the most messianic passages, the Old Testament, Isaiah 61. And and then he says to the to the crowd as they're hanging on his words, Luke makes such a point they were looking upon, and uh, and he says, "This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears." Always just say, "I am your Messiah," and everybody wondered at the marvelous. Now, curiously enough, in other words, there Luke paints a picture where the people are so excited that young Jesus has grown up and now he's come back and he's 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 he's, he's making that remarkable claim. And the next thing Jesus says, which seems non-sequitur, but I don't believe it is. He looks at that crowd and he says, they're in Nazareth. These are the people he lived with his whole life until just a few weeks ago. He had moved his family up to Capernaum. But he looks at that crowd and he says, you know, there were a lot of widows in Israel in Elijah's day, but God sent Elijah to a widow in Syrophoenicia, Gentile territory. And there were a lot of lepers in Elisha's day, but God healed a Syrian leper by the name of Naaman. And the next verse is, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. And what's going on there? Climaxed quickly. Yes, (laughs) I got over it quickly. Well, that's the thing. I think what's at stake is this, that Nazareth was situated on a very strategic ridge overlooking the Jezreel Valley. And the Romans recognized that. And so we're told there's there's historical remembrance and, and archaeological as well, that somewhere on that same ridge close to Nazareth was a Roman outpost. And those Roman soldiers were, they didn't speak the local tongue. They were mercenaries. They were, uh, we might think of them even as barbarians. They were untutored men lar- largely. 
but they had a sword on their side and they could be, they were drinking half the time. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So here you have little Nazareth, a little farming village, right? Just down the road. Here's this outpost. And he's, and I think that's why, you know, uh, you know, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth seems to have been despised. It was a very insignificant village at any rate, but it had some sort of a, you know, really disappointing reputation evidently. And I think it was because of those Gentiles, those soldiers. And so the point is that the people of Nazareth, had, it's like if you were living in the deep south and 40 years ago, and, and there was just really a horrible prejudice against black folk. And, and you as, as a believer, you just knew that was wrong. You just lived in it. You grew up in that. Well, here's Jesus. And there is this, this kind of really inordinate and wicked hatred of Gentiles because of this. So on the one hand, Jesus says, this day is this scripture fulfilled. Yours, everybody's hanging on. He says, you know, God loves Gentiles too. Whoops, that's it. You're out of here. See, And I think what he was doing was, this is the way I like to say it. Jesus had a way to put his finger on the most raw spiritual nerve in your body, hmm. in your psyche, your spiritual suko, and, and, and saying, all right, this is what I demand of you. Not because, and, and one of my, one of the best illustrations is the, is the rich young ruler. You do not get to heaven by selling everything. That's not the point. That man had come. Jesus was blindingly intuitive, but you didn't have to be that intuitive to look at this guy and see what was important to him, for heaven's sakes. And with, you know, the, the finery and the rings and the, and so on. And so, and so he comes and he says, I want to follow you. I want to give you my allegiance. And Jesus says, all right, sell everything you have. Now, the point is not again that that's a, a first level spiritual responsibility or, or you know, it's, it's Jesus is testing the willingness of this man to obey him. He does it again and again. And, uh, and, and I think, uh, and, and I make the point with this, we can be done that, and this is a dynamic you really have to factor in. Jesus had in the providence of God, to be sure, ready at hand, a remarkable foil, a remarkable backdrop against which he could cast himself. And that was the Pharisees. Hmm. Now, we can spend a lot of time on the Pharisees. Suffice it to say, uh, I have high regard for the Pharisees in their, in their genesis, in their origin. They refused to knuckle under to the demand uh, to, to honor all things Greek and Roman and so on. That They said, no, we're going to be loyal to Moses and so on. But there, and I know there's a lot of thought given to it over the last several years, but I'm telling you, the Pharisees who contested Jesus were law keepers. They were absolutely invested in the notion that the way to gain entrance to the kingdom was to be as fastidious as you could about the law. Now, did they believe in the grace of God? Absolutely. And I believe they would have told you God is so gracious, he didn't have to do it, but he's so gracious, he gave us the law. And all we have to do is walk in the law, and we'll be accepted. And Jesus came to contest that. Now, what you have to understand is that the Pharisees were at once wildly, I say it wasn't just popular, they were revered. They, 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 it was, it was, if anybody is going to make it, it's our Pharisee. And let me tell you something, this is important. We look at the biblical narrative of, for instance, the Pharisee who comes and blows his horn and, you know, everybody gathers around while he counts out the little leaves of his vegetable garden and all this sort of stuff. But, and, and we think, how distasteful is that? Well, you have to understand the, the common understanding was that we support 
people of that lifestyle, lifestyle is not bad, but who give themselves with that measure to keep in law. We make them part of our community and we, we support them. They don't work. They live on the alms of the people. And, 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 and in a profound sense, uh, they're helping us get into the kingdom. So they're, they're kind of our representatives. We can't do that. So we just love the Pharisees, but the Pharisees were not only revered, they were feared because your life was built around the synagogue. And the Pharisees had functional, de facto control of the, of, of the synagogue. And if you made your local Pharisee mad, he could toss you up, okay, you know, that, that, that John chapter nine, out of the synagogue. It's a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. So here you have these Pharisees. They are teaching precisely what Jesus has come to contest. Jesus has come to insist that confidence in the provision of God, in this case, the death of the Messiah ultimately is, is your only hope of eternal life. And he's, he's moving in a culture dominated, well, colored, colored deeply, and in many cases dominated by these, these Pharisees who are professional 24 day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, law keepers, and the people just regard them with such reverence and awe. And, and yet you don't want to make them mad because they can toss you out of the synagogue. Now, let me just say in the interest of, of getting on the record that I realized there was a lot of uh, uh, hypocrisy in the Pharisaic fraternity. There was a good measure of cynicism about that in the, in the culture and so on. But nonetheless, uh, the, the, the working reality is that you don't mess with the Pharisees. So I'm saying that, number one, Jesus always had huge crowds. Number two... He had a way of putting to the test what seemed to be the willingness of those crowds to bow to him. And that was hard words. And specifically in that regard, again and again, those hard words have to do with the Pharisees. And it's quite simply, you choose me or the Pharisees. Now, the best example of this, and I always say that, Everybody who studies the Sermon on the Mount thinks he understands it better than anybody else. And I suppose I'm no exception, you know. But I, I, I think what Jesus is saying there, and, and that afternoon, after he had spent a season healing people and, and, and realized they were like sheep who I think he is saying had rejected their shepherd. That's, and so he goes up on that hillside and calls them to, you know, gets their attention and, and, uh, you know, ranges his disciples at his feet so as to sort of flash his rabbinical union card, I like to say. And, and begins to preach. And that sermon, uh, you know, the high point of the, the high point, the key verse, the key thought, the defining thought is, is verse 20 of Matthew 5, where he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never see the kingdom of God. And, and I, and I always say it, I really appreciate this. And we, we try and imagine this when we're standing on the hill that may have, may have actually been the spot, you know, but, but I always say, imagine a little gaggle of Pharisees here, thousands of people hanging on every word, all excited. Many of them, you know, as I say, had broken their crutches over their legs a few hours ago. But over here in the corner is this little gaggle of Pharisees. And if you want to come to grips with Matthew 5, picture Jesus pointing, you know. And and to the to the common man, the very suggestion, the Pharisees are not going to get into the kingdom. A, a gasp would have gone up. Everybody would have been staggered unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You're never going to glimpse. And then I think the rest of the sermon, most of the rest of the sermon, he's contrasting himself with 
those Pharisees and rabbis, those contemporary teachers. They send you, I send you, they send you, I send you. And then at the end, again, picture him pointing, picture him pointing at the Pharisees and saying, there's a Broadway, help yourself, or lead straight to destruction, many go in. Or pointing perhaps to himself, there's a narrow way, you know, it's mm-hmm. straight way. By the same token, pointing at the Pharisees, there you, you can build your house on the sand. That's you know, you, it's going to be destroyed. Or you can build your house pointing to himself on, on a rock. And I and, and that's now the other time you have it. And with this, I'm done. Is Matthew 23, where on Tuesday of the Passion Week, and when we go through the Passion Week, I ask the question: Given Sunday, why Friday? And I think the answer is Monday and Tuesday, because on Sunday the triumphal entry, everybody seems willing to receive him. On Friday, same crowd, crucify him. What happened? Jesus did the same thing. He stood in the temple after cleansing it and occupying it for two days. And a whole chapter, a long chapter, Matthew 23, is given over to what? Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And again, in that in that adventure, in that drama, as the narrative unfolds, all of the Jewish leaders, including the, the, the Sadducees, the chief priests as they're called, the Sanhedrinists, but all of them were trying to catch Jesus in his words, were desperate to see him dead. But in this, in this excoriating series of condemnation upon, it's only the Pharisees. So, scribes and Pharisees, they're, they're, you know, the scribes are the professional class and the Pharisees are sort of the religious fraternity, but it's, it's all one crowd. Woe unto you, scribes. So what is Jesus doing? Again, he's he's putting distance, the most careful and infinite distance between himself and the Pharisees. And in so doing, he is saying to the city, you choose. Hmm. Yesterday I ride into town, or Sunday I ride into town, the whole city erupts in joy and welcomes me and throws down their garments, which is the way you receive a king in that culture. And, and you cry out the Hosanna Psalms of Psalm 118, you welcome me as Messiah. But I'm telling you, you got to choose me or the Pharisees. And I think that huge crowd on that Tuesday afternoon went home and thought about it for a couple of days. And on Friday morning, they awoke very early to the stunning news that this one whom they welcomed as king on Sunday is now on trial for his life. And they, and, and they, they, they hustled to that place. They hurried to that outside courtyard or bema seat. And, uh, and, Pilate puts a question to him. Who do you want? Jesus or Barabbas? And they, they announce their verdict. If Jesus drove them to a decision, which I think he is on Tuesday afternoon, it's me or the Pharisees, then Jesus, uh, the, the, the people gave their verdict when they said, give us Barabbas. So again, this dynamic and, and it spiritual, I mean, uh, theologically, it makes sense to us. We won't go here. But there was, you know, a, a, a spat in the evangelical world of late over lordship theology. There's lordship. There seems to be a bit, a mm-hmm. little bit of lordship in here. You know what I'm saying? If mm-hmm. you're going to follow me, you are going to. And I, and I go back where I've said before that that I think the biblical idea of faith, putting your faith in Jesus, is well represented by the word allegiance. And again, what does it mean to give your allegiance to somebody as a king? And it means at least there are two elements. One is you're going to trust him. He's your security. That's what you do. That's why you, 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 you sign a vassal treaty so that the king will protect you. Your security you're going to find in that king. And number two, you're going to obey him, what he tells you. So, so Jesus put it all together. Never had trouble getting crowds. Those crowds were important because 
Well, they, they, they're important to the record. We got to factor this in because number one, it was hard on the disciples to understand his dying, talk about dying. Number two, it totally tied the hands of his enemies. And number three, it, it, it was what the element that caused him to die at the hands of the Romans. But on the same, by the same token, Jesus had this, this strategy that he uses again and again to test the reality of what seems to be a willingness to follow him. And that is he would, he would demand, he would, he would, he would demand something of the individual of the crowd that he knew was going to cost him something. Hmm. And, and, and by the way, I didn't make that point with the Pharisees. Not only when, when Jesus says it's mere the Pharisees, you've got to factor in John 9 that, that turning your back on the Pharisees is, is, is a serious issue. Right. Yeah, that's, that's so good. Appreciate you, uh, walking us through that. And I think, uh, I speak for myself as well as I'm sure the listeners when I say I don't think I've ever heard a more thorough exposition of the crowds in Jesus's ministry. That's that's really, really neat to, to think through how all that works together. And, and that's really encouraging to put those things uh, that way. So thanks. We look forward to next time. We've got to keep keep getting you in here until you finish the series, you know, not going to let you uh, just escape from us. So. all the fun over here. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's great. Thanks so much for joining us. And as always, if you have any comments or questions, feel free to email me at peter at petergaiman.com. If you want more information about me, you can visit the website petergaiman.com. If you want more information on our seminary, visit shepherds.edu. Until next time, we'll see you later.